Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased to welcome Rob Hopkins to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Rob is an activist and writer on environmental issues based in Totnes in Devon, England. He's best known as the founder of the Transition Movement, a community-driven approach to creating societies independent of fossil fuel, which he initiated in 2005. Hopkins has written four books on environmentalism and activism and is working on a new book on the environmental imagination. So thank you very much, Rob, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about um, your background uh, and what you do? Uh, do you know that is always a question that if anyone asks me at a party what I do uh, is always just a bit of a uh, or is very very hard to capture <laughs> in a sort of a thing. So uh, I'm Rob Hopkins. Hello, my background is um, I went to art school. I uh, travelled around the place. I um, I, I did one of the very first degrees, sustainability degrees. Uh, I spent a long time working in kind of practical sustainability, permaculture, teaching permaculture, learning and then teaching cob building, straw bale building, all that kind of building with local materials type of stuff. I set up the first two-year full-time permaculture course in the world at a college in Ireland. I uh, then moved here to the UK and in 2005-2006 started something which became known as the Transition Movement. Uh, which is going to be the subject of what we're going to talk about mostly. And I'm currently writing and just finishing a book about imagination, which will be coming out uh, next October. This October, sorry. Excellent. Well, I, I, maybe we can touch on that um, later on. That would be great. Um, yes. So um, maybe just before we dive into the transition towns, uh, transitions, um, maybe... Can you tell me a little bit, um, I mean, you've been, as you say, uh, at the forefront of this, you know, in terms of uh, the permaculture movement and and indeed uh, transitioning uh, towns. Uh, so you've seen some developments over the, this p- period. What's on your mind at the moment and what worries you the most? Um, I think, what, well, I mean, there are many things, I guess. I guess for me today because it changes quite regularly. I think the, the, the thing that is really with me today is um, it's just the spectacular lack of imagination from the people who are at the helm at this point in history. You know, I, um, I just read Philip Hammond, who is the Chancellor of the Exchequer here, who said, well, we could reach, uh, get we could get to zero carbon by 2050, but it would cost us a trillion pounds. And that would mean we'd have less money to spend on police and schools and all these kind of things. And it's like, what are you talking about? How, if you wanted to recreate business as usual, as we have at the moment with its accompanying inequalities and uh, a loneliness epidemic and uh, all of the stuff that happens now, and you wanted to recreate that in the future in a zero carbon way, then maybe, but actually, if you applied a bit of imagination and creativity and brought people together and looked at joined up solutions where you thought, actually, we can reimagine the NHS so that it's a well-being service and it's rooted in community and it's rooted in good food and conversation and culture and creativity. And you reimagine the police in a different way. And, you know, you, 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 you see climate change as the opportunity to reimagine and rebuild everything then it's not going to cost a trillion pounds. What are you even talking about? So I'm, I'm kind of with that at the moment, you know, that, that sense we are governed by people who exist in a world of extreme imaginative poverty, which is absolutely the last thing that we need right now. 
Yes, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, it touches on a number of points, I guess, in the way that the, the debate in America um, and, and in, a, I guess, classical American fashion, they tend to present these ideas um, in, in, a, in financial terms, the possibilities of growth, as it were. The, you know, the other side of the coin, the commodification of the climate crisis in some ways, um, which maybe we can touch on a little later. Um, but I, I'm interested in this question of uh, imagination and, I guess, ecological imagination because uh, I guess underlying, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, the, the transition movement is some sense of creating, uh, I guess, a, a vision of the future in, in some sense. And I just wonder also, is that something that you, you, you think about a little bit in, in the sense that um, the narrative that we've had for so long and which obviously is getting the drumbeat is getting louder and louder in terms of just the the, the sheer uh, impact, environmental impact of it will call it what you will consumer capitalism and so forth. Um, maybe uh, with less focus on the kinds of alternatives and and future visions of what they would look like and and so it's not just the government but also maybe across across uh the social spectrum and and indeed environmental organizations and, and activists what that that we're seeing less imagination across those areas that even that yes that that you know this is something that i i hear people talk about they say listen you know if you want to get uh, you know change you've got to stop you know we, we we scientists and environmentalists have had a kind of single tune for a very long time which is you know the world is going to hell in the handbasket we're about to be destroyed it's going going gone and within that there's less vision less talk about what kinds of societies you you would create could create what kind of initiatives so what i'm saying is not just limited to the government but maybe historically um uh, you know an issue uh within the environmental movement i'm just wondering whether you think that's got any validity yes i i i do think that we are living in a time where we are really really short on um uh, positive, um, realistic, uh, hopeful storytelling about the future that is still possible that we could create. And, uh, you know, we, if, if we are, if we were to actually achieve what the, the, the UN says in the next 11 years, we have to cut emissions by half and be firmly on the way to zero. If we did that and we were now 11 years in the future from now, we were looking back, how would that time have been? You know, I think I think to you know we weren't we weren't able to live through the civil rights movement. We were movement. We weren't able to live through the suffragettes. We are able to live during the time of the climate emergency, and actually, I think to live through those eleven years where we hopefully saw the most extraordinary uh, mobilization of people and communities and uh, a reorientation of politics. We elected people who cared. Uh, people came in and, and 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 removed the obstacles to this stuff happening. Uh, we saw a flourishing of of a new economy of doing energy in a different way. We saw a, a massive kind of uh, push towards rewilding uh, and and uh, an explosion of new kind of uh, local food entrepreneurship, etc., etc., etc. I think it would be the most absolutely extraordinary time in history to live through. And if we start every conversation just by talking about how awful the future is going to be, we kill that stone dead. You know, Martin Luther King didn't stand up at the at, at the march in Washington in 1963 and say, I have a dream, uh, but it's probably going to be a bit expensive. And it might, you know, cause some disruption to commuters. And actually, it probably won't work anyway. I don't know what I was thinking of. Do you know, actually... We need to become so much better, I think, at really telling the stories about how absolutely phenomenal it would be to live through that time, to live in the kind of world that it's still it's still possible that we could create. And, you know, the, the, the research about um, the power of, of putting those stories in front of us. I find fascinating. For this book, I interviewed two researchers at Plymouth University called John May and Jackie Andrade, who who do this who do this research about something they call functional imagery training, which is the idea that when people have obesity or addiction issues or something and they want to make a change in their life, rather than just saying, "Okay, here's a plan," 
work your way through this plan, they work with them to to use their imagination in a multi-sensory way. So they might say, okay, imagine you're out running. You've been running for six months. You can do it. You're running in the sunshine. You can hear the bird song. You can feel the sunshine on your skin. Or, you know, imagine for the first time in the last 30 years, you're able to get down uh, on your hands and knees and play with your grandchildren because you've lost enough weight and you've got yourself into shape. And to really hone that kind of mental image, that mental picture of what it would be like. And the results they have is extraordinary in terms of people, uh, they call it creating new memories of the future. And it feels to me like we, we, we need to be working really hard to create memories of the future, which move us away from, it's gonna be awful. You know, I, I went to the Extinction Rebellion uh, stuff in London, which I thought was extraordinary. Um, and most of it I loved. And there was one thing that that, that, that I thought, oh, dear, was they had these big banners that just said, we're fucked on them. <laughs> I thought, I'm, I'm not sure about that messaging there. You know, <laughs> yes. I, I'd, I'd much rather. And actually what they did do was, for example, on Waterloo Bridge, you know, they transformed that bridge into a into a kind of living breathing example of of what the future could be like trees all down the middle and kitchen and library and people doing exercise and conversations and it was just amazing so so yeah i th for me and it's kind of the, the the whole reason i've written this book really is because it feels to me like um you know i see particularly when i go to france and belgium but actually increasingly here i meet a lot of people who are environmental activists quite often they might be transition activists as well who have gone down this route of what in france and belgium they call collapsology people like pablo Servine who've written books about so saying a collapse is inevitable uh, it's too late to do anything you know climate change is now completely irreversible and uh and actually what i see in people who kind of succumb to that stuff is is they become really paralyzed it's not the case for everybody but i mean a lot of people who are kind of carrying a black stone around in their heart and, and it feels like it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy and yes, and actually yes. while there is still a small window where we can do things i think that the way we make that happen is by is by painting a picture of something that, that creates longing i guess for me longing feels like an increasingly important word how do we help how do we enable people to long for a low carbon future so when politicians say we'll cut emissions 80 percent by 2040 you can't you can't long for that that's just numbers on a piece of paper you know what would it be like tell me about it what would it smell like what would i have for breakfast in that future what would we do uh, uh and so for me a lot of what we try and do in transition is about telling those stories but also to bring it alive in the present to kind of give people a taste of it now yeah and bring yeah. it live for people in a, in a very physical way yeah yeah very interesting i mean we'll touch on that hopefully at the end uh, a little bit more on your book and some of those you know very interesting ideas um, and and yes, this collapseology. At the same time, I have spoken to some people who do feel that some kind of collapse, um, maybe not a global collapse, but you know, social systems will change dramatically in in and and you know, uh, food systems and other systems like that, which actually motivates them to get involved in uh, local movements, local localization, um, and I guess the kinds of uh ideas not very dissimilar from from the the transition uh movement so maybe if you could talk a little bit about that what 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 is it what's what's the goal here and and maybe give us a sense of of the scope of of of, of you know the transition today yeah so so the idea of transition has always been about um making the so we we, we talk about transition as being a movement of communities who are reimagining and rebuilding the world and and the concept is really that uh, that when you look at it through, when, when you look at the community and the place around you through kind of transition lenses, if you like, uh, you have uh, there are loads of opportunities for, uh, for for bringing the the economy home, I guess, in a way, and and recreating it in a way that uh, that, that is about the idea of how you enable more money to stay locally and cycle locally and you use that as the way to build connection and community uh, and entrepreneurship and so on so you know they're, they're doing that in the city of preston with an extraordinary kind of experiment there 
where it's about reimagining how do you use the key organizations and institutions in the town to use their spending power to support local food production, local energy generation, and local cooperatives so that money stays locally. And it gives communities a lot more uh, control over what they're going to do. Uh, transition has always been about uh, about uh, dreaming the kind of future that we would like to create it's always been about conversation so for example we did a big project here in Totnes called Transition Streets which was a kind of a street by street behavior change model so the idea was how do you help people reduce their energy you could just send them a DVD in the post or maybe actually what you do is you get them together with the neighbors on their street uh, with a bit of facilitation and a simple guide and they meet once every couple of weeks for seven weeks one week they look at water, one week they look at energy and so on. And the thing that most fascinated me was we did this with 550 households in Totnes. And on average, each household cut its carbon footprint by about 1.3 tonnes, saved themselves five or six hundred pounds a year. But when the researchers went to everybody and said, what did you get out of being part of this? No one mentioned the money they saved. No one mentioned the CO2. Everybody talked about, I feel part of my street. I feel part of my community. You know, so actually, and that's what I see up and down the country with projects that transition groups do, where they are starting to put in place the infrastructure that, are, that, that a much lower carbon society would need and actually finding that's, that's the way that you, that, that you bring people together. There are doctors' practices now who are starting to kind of bring in transition ideas using that as a way of build a community, uh, building a community around the practice, bringing the community into the practice. And I guess, you know, fundamental to transition is, is this idea that when we talk about uh, a world that is able to stay below one and a half degrees increase, that goes far beyond kind of business as usual, just with solar panels on the roof and some organic carrots. You know, it requires a really deep rethink of the scale that we do things on. And that in turn means, I think, that we need to be looking at how do we how do we reimagine the economies of the places where we live? And there's my, my favorite example, actually, from the transition movement is in the city of Liège in Belgium, where I went five years ago and Liège en Transition had started a project called Centure Alimentaire, which means food belt. And it had a really simple what if question, which was what if in a generation's time, the majority of food eaten in Liège uh, was grown on the land closest to Liège. And um, uh, and then I went away, I went to a, meet, a big event where they launched this idea and invited anyone who cared about food. I went back four years later, last spring, and they had started 21 new cooperatives. They had raised 5 million euros of investment from local people uh, in order to support those co-ops into existence. They, uh, they started two farms, uh, two vineyards, a brewery, uh, three shops in town, just phenomenal. And I met the mayor of Liège who said, this is now the story of this city. Eight years ago, we wanted to be a smart city. Now we want to be a transition city. And we see our role as being to remove whatever obstacles there are to this and to uh, and to uh, you know help it however we can we're making all our land available for people who want to become food growers as part of this you know and there i was one of the first places i really got a sense of you know wow this 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 is this is a strategy that will completely that, that has the potential to transform this city in a way that actually is yes. a step forward in every at every moment it's a yes. public health strategy yes. mental health strategy biodiversity Etc. 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 Right, that's fascinating because I guess that's one of the the I mean maybe not uh, untold stories to some extent of of recent uh, d demographics is just the extraordinary extent to which uh, we're moving towards a more urban uh, kind of lifestyle across the world and I think that recently there was some some research which showed that really underestimated just how big a phenomenon this urbanization is and people moving to cities and the growth of the cities and 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 so forth and also um, increasingly um, movement on the uh, ecological front as well cities being you know having agency and being actors and and taking the initiative um, I guess you, you started as I understand in Kinsale and Totnes and the ideas developed there and uh, is transition town transition cities is is that where the where the movement's going today can you give us a sense of what was some scope of of the transition movement and the degree to which it's you know focused more on on towns focused more on cities 
Yeah, so we started uh, in 2006 here in, in Totnes in Devon, really just trying to design something that might work here uh, with no idea of, uh, of it being something that would go anywhere else particularly. And now in 2019, there are transition groups in 50 countries around the world, thousands of places. It's very much a kind of self-organizing uh, approach. We always say to people, you know, you don't have to pay an annual membership fee to be a transition group. All the resources are free. Being part of the network is free. There's only one commitment, which is that you share your stories. So, uh, in many ways, it's a it's a, a network of a network of storytelling, and uh, people uh, sharing and figuring that out. So, uh, there are. I'd say when we initially designed the the transition idea, it was designed <clears throat> as a um, as a detox for the affluent West, I guess. So it was a model that was designed to work in, in the kind of wealthier Western nations, but it's very interesting to see how transition has been popping up in uh, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, uh, uh, South Africa, uh, all kinds of South Korea, uh, in, a, in this beautiful sort of self-organizing kind of a way. Um, <clears throat> it is uh, generally in big cities, transition doesn't work on a city scale. It's to, it's a strategy to work at the neighbourhood scale. So in London, there are something like 50 transition groups across London, but Transition London only exists as a kind of loose network and kind of information sharing thing. You know, it, it's designed to work at that neighbourhood scale. Actually, interestingly, which are often around the kind of size of Totnes. <laughs> it's like there's something about a sort of market town kind of a size where people feel they have enough agency to try and change things. Yes. yes. Uh, so, 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 but also, you know, we're, so we're seeing lots of transition towns. We're seeing transition neighborhoods across cities. There are transition villages. There are many regional networks of transition groups. There are 24 countries now, I think that have a national, what we call a hub. So like transition Belgium, transition France, a national organization, which supports uh, and networks those those groups together. There are transition universities. There are uh, some very interesting examples where transition is actually, particularly in, in France, actually, where mayors have a lot more power, where transition is actually led by very enlightened mayors. There's an amazing place called uh, Ungersheim in France who, who are an extraordinary transition case study of, of what happens when the mayor watches a film about transition and goes, let's do that, all of that. And then, you know, a few years later, you, re, you, go, you go to a place where you see all the interconnections between food, energy, uh, and, you know, that, that whole kind of thing together. An amazing town, a city near Dunkirk called uh, Grand Sainte, where a mayor called Damien Carême as well was very inspired by transition and has done some extraordinary, uh, extraordinary things there. And we now have a project which is called uh, Municipalities in Transition, which is run by the Transition Network, which is about supporting and trying to bridge the interest from communities who are saying, come on, we need the support of our municipalities and some places where there's people who are working very hard in municipalities who love transition and they were trying to work out how they can build that bridge between local communities and local governments and how they can work together much, much more effectively. Yeah. And, there, and then there are also places where there are people who are very actively involved in transition who decided, OK, if we're going to scale this stuff up, we need to run and become the government of this place. So you have local yeah. governments yeah. now made up of transition people. So it's coming. It's working on all different levels. And what would you say are some of the the, the biggest uh, learnings that you've had over, over? I mean, two or three things that you 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 really think uh, you've gained insight, and maybe to some extent that weren't obvious from the beginning, and maybe something that uh, an aspect of it that you think you know that didn't work out quite so well, or or um, and I'm quite interested in, and and I think one or two people I spoke to uh, around the question of localization had questions about local currencies and whether or not they were really uh, viable or a good use of resources and so forth uh be interested in getting your experience of that so yeah i guess a few highs and lows in terms of you know in, insights and in, over the last uh, 10 15 years yeah i uh well i would say one of the highs is that it's still here you know it's <laughs> yes. like actually, you know you look at something like occupy or the nuit debout movement in france these things that sort of emerge with a big fanfare and then just sort of disappear again you know so so that the fact that we 
were consciously able to kind of build a structure under this kind of uh, the souffle uh, to enable it to keep going feels like quite an achievement. Uh, the fact that this is a movement that has generated, uh, you know, and, you know, we could just spend hours sitting here of just me saying, and, and here they did this, and here they did that, and here, you know. But actually all those different stories that this movement generates, I think, are uh, are just phenomenal. Um I'd say some of the learnings are that uh, that it can be hard sometimes to sustain momentum over a long time. So there are some groups that just run out of steam because uh, because they get tired or they get exhausted or they all fall out with each other or whatever. You know, so there is a huge amount of um, effort that goes into the, the from transition network in terms of training people. Uh, around this culture of having healthy groups so groups are trained in how to run good meetings and make good decisions and you know that 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 idea that how we do things matters as much as what we do is really really central uh, to the transition movement i would say that 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 sometimes having shifting our thinking as groups from the idea that we can do we can achieve the ambitions that that transition groups have just with entirely volunteers is just nonsense you know uh, uh you know a group that meets once every other wednesday evening and has a couple of hours to meet up is not going to achieve the complete reimagining of the economy of a place you know we have to find the the thinking and the structures to create uh new energy companies new food businesses new new networks to a- enable that to happen uh and uh and, and that's been a real shift in the transition movement i think we call it the economy project is that idea of giving communities the the tools to start thinking about how they do that and there are some great activities that come through that uh in terms of local currencies i think local currencies is 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 one thing is what is like one uh tool in the toolbox i suppose uh it's you certainly it's certainly not that you can't do transition without a local currency uh it's it's something that some people have energy for and and like to do you know we ran the totness pound here for 12 years uh and then we just wound it down about three months ago because people just weren't really using cash anymore and we saw that the, the the circulation was falling and falling and we didn't want it to just sort of disappear with a fut because actually um we really loved it and it was a beautiful thing in this town and it meant a lot to a lot of people and so we had a massive celebration party uh and really celebrated the life and times uh of the totness pound there are other schemes like the bristol pound which is going well uh, and in france and belgium everywhere i go seems to have a local currency who are doing some really interesting things that are changing the model and adapting the model from the way that we've done it here. So, you know, nobody yes. knows how to do it yet. It's really like, a, I think Thomas Edison said something like, you know, I made 10,000 light bulbs before I made the first commercially viable one. Does that mean that all the 9,999 ones were failures? Uh, you know, I would say they were all successes because they were what got me to this point of finding the light bulb that works, you know? Yes, so, yes. So, so for me, you know, I, 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 there is something, we live in times that are very, very risk averse. And people are frightened to make themselves look stupid by trying things out that don't work. And in the transition movement, we have really no worry about saying, well, we tried that and it didn't work. And this is what we learned. And really encouraging people to just take risks and try things and learn from what's gone before and try something else. Yes, yes, very interesting. And and, and you, 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 tied to this, I guess, is the question of finance and, I guess, business and um the, the, the conventional ways in which business operates, um, you know, is problematic and the growth uh, agenda associated with uh, uh, mainstream like, corporate activity and so forth. Um, I just wonder how you've how successful you've been or how you found it raising uh, capital for different kind of ownership structures for different uh, models of, uh, you know, maybe more social entrepreneurship, maybe co-ops 
those kind of things. Um, I mean, not one's expecting to, you know, I suppose you, you, one might see one day a kind of a, not, not like a silicon hub, but a, a kind of transition hub in some sense of, you know, where, where a lot of new businesses are set up, maybe co-ops or, you know, but new organizations that, you know, to develop uh, new ideas and, and also, yeah, to build, to build the uh, kind of a, a economy, a local economy in that way. How has that been? Well, we, uh, I suppose in in Totnes we have a a small version of that in that we have we have a place called the Reconomy Centre, which is an incubator for new enterprises, which was a very intentional shift in in the way we did transition in in the town here about six or seven years ago, which was to say we need to build a new economy here, and how do we do that? Uh, so the Reconomy Centre is a like an incubator space they every year they run an event which is my favorite event of the year called the local entrepreneur forum where four or five different people stand up and say hello my name is whatever rob and i want to start a uh <coughs> a business doing whatever it is uh, and what i need is this uh and they set out what their needs are and their offers for people to get involved and they can be financial or they can be non-financial they might they might say i need ten thousand pounds I need a, a, a work unit, I need someone who can make a website for me, and I need someone to advise me on tax or something. And then in the 400 people in the audience, someone will say, I'll invest a thousand pounds if three other people will, or I've got a building you can use, or, you know, it's amazing. This year's was the eighth time we've run it. More than 30 businesses have gone through it. Most of them are still uh, are still going. It's raised over 100,000 pounds of investment uh, into those businesses and created a really dynamic network of businesses who've gone through it in the past to go back every year uh, to, to support the people who are then coming through and trying to find ways to collaborate with them. I'm involved with a, a social enterprise craft brewery that we started up and we pitched the first year that it happened and we found our investor through that and we go back every year and identify one or two of the people who are pitching and we do collaborative beers with them and find different ways to sort of work with them uh, and that's an idea that's kind of spreading out to other places to different places i think uh, for me that the, the the big sort of shift in thinking for me was at the beginning when we started transition i guess you could say that that we were working with a sense of as kind of environmentalist community environmentalists our sense was what does this place need this place needs to cut its carbon emissions and we're going to find creative ways to do that now the way i think about it is what does this town feel it needs and how can we meet those needs in a way that also kind of uh, uh, furthers transition so so in Tottenham now we have two projects one of which is explicitly a transition project and the other one that's had lots of overlaps uh, with transition during its lifetime which together are going to be building over 100 homes which will be in community ownership forever building workshop spaces building a hotel building a new space for public events all of that stuff will be in community ownership and will generate funds going forward uh, you know so so for me it, it's really this this idea of creating a new economy is something that's kind of becoming increasingly tangible here and and we're building these networks of people who are invested in different things we have a, a kind of a community of older people now who come along to the left to the local entrepreneur forum every year and they identify things they want to invest in and they think well you know i could have my money in a pension actually i can take some of it out and I can invest it in a whole range of different emergent local things. And if, if you know, a third of them go out of business, it's still okay because I've got I'm invested in these different things. But also, I feel part of it. I can go along. I can volunteer with them. I I feel involved in them. Yes, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's, yes. Magic. it's like impact investing that actually has an impact. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. Do do you ever or do do any of the uh, transition team ever worry about the scale? And I just wonder when you've got, um, you know, certain size units and things, you know, you're working at Totnes. Um, do you, is there, uh, do you think about this question whether or not, you know, by putting together two or three different transition communities, you'd be able to serve at a sufficient scale? Or are you, you know, philosophically, are you very happy to have, uh, you know, distributed, small, you know, employee, uh, you know, involved kind of organizations? Is that part of the, what you're thinking is uh, well, uh, uh, I don't think we are uh, I mean if you look at I suppose the example that would come to mind is 
in in Bath, so Transition Bath and Transition Caution came together to create a community energy company called Bath and West Community Energy, which has raised about 13 million pounds of investment from people in and around Bath, which they felt they could do better uh, working collaboratively in that way. Uh, but I think generally, yeah, for me, the model is 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 small local diverse you know this brewery that i'm involved with we're about to become a community benefit society to invite the community to buy the business but our idea is really we have there's a particular sort of scale we want to get to and then evolve in different ways and actually then become an incubator for new enterprises or you know david fleming who was a big kind of inspiration to me yes yes he wrote an extraordinary book called lean logic he was yes. kind of a, he was a real mentor of ours in the early really days. He, oh, yeah. he used to say he used to say it's not about silver bullets yes. it's about silver buckshot <laughs> yes. very, like you know that we're not looking for one thing we're looking for a whole dazzling diversity of of ideas and possibilities and things that are very very place specific yes yes you know, that's a very interesting yeah yeah lots of things that i go and see projects whether they're businesses or projects that transition groups have started which is like firstly no one in whitehall would have thought of this idea in a million years and secondly this would only really work here there are elements of it you could take somewhere else but the fundamentals of this work here uh, and that's beautiful because, you know, like in, in uh, Black Isle in Scotland, there's a peninsula there. They got funding from the Scottish government to do a project called the Million Miles Project, which was to reduce the amount of car use by a million miles a year. Um, and because the people who ran it were local people from that place, they knew everybody, they understood the place. Uh, they were able to work in a way that someone coming from the Scottish government with a clipboard and a, and a big pot of money would never have been able to do. And they actually ended up reducing car use in on this peninsula, the equivalent to driving to the moon and back two and a half times by promoting cycling, uh, walking, car sharing and stuff like that. But it's because they were they were from that place. Yes, brilliant, brilliant. I guess what, what emerges as well, and you're talking about shifts in thinking, is that you have this systemic view, I guess, of of a you know a transition we should call it a transition community a transition town the kinds of different elements that are you know part of a system that 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 nourish each other and that are synergistic i guess in a sense i mean could you talk a little bit maybe about the, uh, what a systems perspective you know what insights you might have had from that or just how how you include that in the way you think about things well, I guess to come back to when I was talking earlier on about Philip Hammond uh, in the news today saying, oh, it'll cost a trillion pounds to stay below, uh, uh, to, to get down to zero carbon by 2050. You know, well, yeah, if, if you think in a completely linear, stupid kind of a way, but actually if you start thinking, okay, uh, let's reimagine the National Health Service Let's let's you know, I've, I visited an extraordinary place in France a few weeks ago called uh, Montsartou, which is a town where about five years ago, the French government introduced a rule to say that 20 uh, percent of food in French schools should be organic. And the municipality in this town went, well, um, if 20 percent is better for our kids than zero percent, then why are we stopping at 20%? Why don't we just go for 100%? So they now have a thing where 100% of the food in all the schools in this town is organic, and 70% of it is grown uh, on a commercial market garden on the edge of the town on a seven-hectare site, which the municipality uh, uh, bought, which was going to be developed for housing, and they turned it into this beautiful uh, market garden with polytunnels and orchards and bees everywhere just phenomenal place and I and I went there as a few weeks ago I was and I was walking around and it, it, I, I found it really emotional because it for me it was you know I've spent the last 12 years going around and and basically with this vision in my head of this place of something like this <laughs> talking to people about this and trying to help them to and now i'm in it and i can see it and i can smell it and i can talk to the people who were doing the weeding here and i went to the school and i had lunch with the kids and i and i and, and actually i'm looking at this i'm thinking this is a win 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 uh solution here you know this is something which by applying a bit of imagination to it is is giving people 
space to breathe in their lives. It's giving the kids healthier food. What they found was fascinating was that after they introduced this policy, 13% of families in the school said they now buy all organic food and 60% of families who previously said they never bought any organic food now buy some. You know, So there was a culture shift going on because the municipality had taken that bold step to say, let's do this. You know, So I'm thinking, okay, if that works here, imagine if we're saying in every city, the hospitals do the same thing. And hospitals are surrounded by market gardens. They use their grounds for growing food. They, they team up with land on the edge of the town. They see growing food for the hospital and the hospital spending its money on food as a key public health strategy to get people active, to get people back into work again. It's a key biodiversity strategy for the town. There's this beautiful thing in London called London, the National Park City, about reimagining London as a national park. You know, well, that that can run through uh, through through uh, the economic approach for the city. Um, you know, so yes. you, you, you're looking at strategies, strategies which are uh, a mental health strategy, a public health strategy, uh, ending the epidemic of loneliness, getting people together, the massive anxiety crisis among young people in particular, but across society, you know, that there is a way of managing all of this. If we can bring imaginative thinking to it and, and, and rethinking everything that is, is not going to cost a trillion pounds and uh, would just be that is the thing for me is that it is tantalizingly in reach and i have this privilege of going around to visit yes. places where it's all already happening it's not yes. there's nothing here that we have to fly to mars to collect some magic stone to yes. make <laughs> and is this in your experience i mean how broad based is the participation i mean sometimes some of these you know organic uh, initiatives you come across in london are you know the food is is, is very pricey it's a very middle class uh, particular kind of group of people who are you know interested in supported to what extent is 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 it your experience that you you're getting uh you know a wider social mix more people involved and and i guess also linked to that is the you know is the financial implications you know you talk about these uh, amazing uh you know uh, f local food and organic food initiatives um and yet you know for for a significant proportion of the community and particularly in the uk you know food prices are, are a real issue yeah. So, so then the the question for me then is is is, is kind of we're asking the wrong question. It's, it's not why is it that only that the middle class people can afford organic food. It's why is it that we consider it acceptable for so many people in this population to have no choice other than to eat shit food, and then to and then to be happy to spend masses of public money on 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 then addressing the public health crisis that that, that arises from that. Uh, but actually, you can't you can't interfere with the fact that people can only afford to eat crap food uh, because that's uh, that's all about choice in the free market. Uh, you know, so I, and actually, you know, when I went to that place in, in that town in France, it wasn't like just the middle class kids in the school were eating the organic food. It was for everybody, you know, and, and actually we have to look at the fact that that system whereby so many people have no choice other than to eat really uh, a really poor diet is not an issue of choice. It, it, it's a lack of choice. It creates huge problems down the line, and uh, uh, and and it shouldn't be like that, you know. So so uh, of course, initially, when you are starting uh, new food-based businesses which are trying to do something differently, it, it's more expensive because all the subsidies go in a particular direction because. Uh, all of the um, externalities of producing the food in that way are passed on to the public to clean up all the mess, uh, including the public health epidemic. So again, if Philip Hammond, to come back to our friend Philip Hammond again, had any kind of imagination, it's like you don't look at the public health uh, crisis and the way that families feed themselves as somehow being separate from each other. You know, you we, we have to look at this this join this up look at it holistically look at it systemically and say everybody in this country has a right to eat a diet which which keeps them healthy everybody in this country should have a right to uh, an education which which enables their imagination to flourish not be snuffed out by the age of six everybody in this country deserves uh, somewhere to live Everybody in this country has a right to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, yes. there's, a beautiful, there's a beautiful movement called Universal Basic Assets, 
which is kind of goes beyond the idea of universal basic income and says everybody has a right to a good education, public transport, uh, a clean a clean air. You know, and for me, there's something about if we move towards this idea of universal basic assets, we can still uh, we can still do really extraordinary things. Now, I'm mindful of the time, Rob, and I w- would like to talk about your book. I'm just wondering, um, get a sense. I mean, in, in, in recent months, in the last year or so, certainly the last six months, there seems to be tremendous momentum uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, awareness and, and indeed uh, act, action about uh, the climate crisis, about the environmental crisis. There's, uh, you know, ex- not just Extinction Rebellion, but Greta Thunberg. And, you know, I-, I think even in America, where there's been an extremely polarised opinion, you know, the climate is get is on people's minds. They're seeing what's happening. So there does seem to be a groundswell. Um, you've got AOC in, in, in Congress. You've got the Green New Deal. So um, in a way, it almost seems like the debate has moved quite quickly from you know is it happening or not and now there's you know a, a lot of a lot of question about you know what are we going to do and so forth and it seemed in a way that the transition uh movement is uh you know that, that it, it was always a step the next step because people you know you had to understand there was a crisis in the first place um before you even start to think about you know why you'd need to do something about it or want to do something about it and i'm just wondering what you think the 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 changing climate means for, for for transition and what your vision really is is over the next few years uh i you know i i i feel like as somebody who's been doing this for 12 or 13 years i kind of feel like the reinforcements have arrived somehow <laughs> it feels like the cavalry have arrived from yes. wherever and uh uh i think i've i go i've been on all the school strike just sort of going along to support the school strikes in exeter which is the city near where i live they're absolutely extraordinary and i find it so emotional uh being on being on the school strikes being around the school strikes it's just fabulous and my wife was very active in the extinction rebellion two weeks of rebellion up in london she was got arrested twice and uh and i went up for some bits of those and i just thought it was amazing how in that short period of time the debate uh how much more seriously the the, the debate was taken in the first day of the media was all oh everyone's late for work isn't this terrible second day they had Kevin Anderson on the radio and all the people on there talking about, no, this is really serious. This is why this is happening. David Attenborough's thing came out, you know, I, and then all the places declaring a climate emergency. It feels it feels to me like transition for a long time has been like the carrot. You know, it's been <clears throat> based around this narrative of we could create something amazing here. Let's get started. Let's do it now. What we haven't had so much has been the stick. Uh, you know that has said you need to sort this out this this is not acceptable anymore and I'm going to super glue myself to your house until you actually do something uh, you know and uh, and so f- for me it, it it feels like something feels to me like the tectonic plates underneath all of this stuff are shift starting to shift in the last few months in a way that feels absolutely fascinating and and so I'm really really hopeful that uh, that that uh you know that the saying that that we the extinction rebellion and the school strikes are a beautiful bold loud imaginative no and they need to be accompanied by a beautiful bold imaginative loud yes and i think when we get those two things together uh then i think we'll start to see things move very quickly right fascinating um and, and very optimistic um what what about your book very briefly i am mindful of the time um talking about this question of the imagination what what's what's the book called and what are a few few of the uh, interesting insights you've had because i guess for you it's been a journey as well in terms of discovery and uh, research mm, yeah i've spent the last two years working on it and i uh, I, I what i realized the other day was i interviewed over 100 people for it and i'd only heard of about 25% of them when I started the book. So it's been a real kind of journey. And it, and I, I start, it's called From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Imagination to Create the Future We Want. It's going to be published by Chelsea Green Publishing in October. And uh, in essence, it came around because I found myself reading people like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben and George Monbiot and people I really respect who kept saying, climate change is a failure of the imagination. And then they would go off onto something else. And I was left there going, uh, oh, that was really interesting. What did you mean? What, uh, what was that all about? And so and then I read some really interesting research from about 2011, where this researcher argued that, that, that we were seeing a decline 
uh, in our imagination since the mid-1990s uh, through uh, this American creativity test that she had a big data set of. And so it set me off on this question of, are we as imaginative as we used to be? I think in many ways, climate change is the logical, gruesome outcome of Margaret Thatcher saying there is no alternative. And of course there's an alternative. There has to be an alternative. Our survival depends on there being an alternative. And my concern is that we are at a time that demands us to be as imaginative as we can possibly be. And we're in a time where our imagination is not up to it. It's kind of in this perfect storm of um, an epidemic of anxiety which shrinks the imagination, uh, social media and the technologies that sort of suck our attention and our imagination away somewhere else, uh, the uh, uh, a whole range of different things. So the book is a kind of an exploration about are we living in a time of imaginative crisis? And if we are, why? And what might we do about it? So it includes, you know, uh, uh, visits to all kinds of fascinating projects who are really putting the imagination first and asking what if uh, we talk to uh, the, the local government in the city of Bologna who have created a civic imagination office as part of how they run the city, the mayor of Mexico who's created a like in effect a ministry of imagination. It asks what would it look like if we created a national imagination act uh, to really fire up the imagination across the country, how would that work? Uh, so it's it's it takes a kind of a, 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 a lateral approach to the challenge that we face and says we need to create a culture where anything feels possible. What would it be like to live in a time when anything felt possible and school produced young people whose imaginations were like a superpower and the organizations that we worked in uh, 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 valued our ideas and our imagination. And uh, so I'm hopeful that it will be, it, it, it will fit in really beautifully with the debates going on now around what do we do next to say, actually we need to be creating the ideal conditions in which the human imagination can flourish because without it, uh, we end up like Philip Hammond, and then we're all sunk. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back to Philip. And and where are you with that? Are you are you nearly finished the book? Yeah, it's finished. It's just being laid out and designed at the moment, and uh, and it'll be coming out in October. Great. Well, fantastic. And um, I will uh, make sure to uh, publicise and send uh, information, share information with listeners and so forth when that happens. But thank you so much, Rob, for uh, joining me today and talking about all the, the great work that you've done and uh, great insights and uh, ideas and very inspiring. So I uh, wish you the best. My pleasure. Thanks. And thank you for doing your podcast. It's a great contribution to everything. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.